Hey, this is Chris. Before we get to the show, let me tell you a little bit about Anchor. Anchor is our way of we record podcasts. Fantastic. Let me tell you why. It's easy. It's free. There are creation tools that we can record and edit your podcast right from your phone and your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on such um, providers as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need in a podcast and so much more. Check out Anchor, and you can find it all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Anchor, it's a fantastic way of creating your first podcast and making it work. I don't know if you've ever been much into uh, memorabilia, uh, whether it be sports memorabilia or any sort of memorabilia. Uh, at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary uh, last winter before the pandemic hit, they had a display, and I should have brought a picture of it, but it was uh, a multimedia, not multimedia, but there was different types of materials used in making this very large picture of Mr. Rogers, uh, who graduated from Pittsburgh Seminary. And the picture of Mr. Rogers was made up of pieces of his actual cardigan, his actual glasses, and all of these pieces of memorabilia from uh, his television show went into that picture. It was really neat to watch, but I happened to look up some other famous memorabilia that went to auction and was pretty surprised at what people were willing to pay for memorabilia. There was a pair of salt and pepper shakers that in 1996 sold for $18,000. Now, I don't know about you, but when we go to the grocery store, there's those little packs of salt and pepper together, like in the cardboard tubes. That's about what we pay for salt and pepper. But the reason these sold for $18,000 was because these were the personal salt and pepper shakers of John Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy. Now, does that make it worth $18,000? Not to me, uh, but somebody found it worth that price. There was an oak rocking chair that sold in 1996 for $442,000. Again, the private rocking chair of President John F. Kennedy. Audrey Hepburn's personal script for the movie Breakfast at Tiffany sold in 2018 for $811,000. Beatles drummer Ringo Starr, his drum kit sold in 2015 for $2.2 million. That must be nice to have that kind of uh, expendable income, wouldn't it? Marie Antoinette's uh, personal pearl pendant sold in 2018 for $32 million. In 2017, a picture that they believe was painted by Leonardo da Vinci sold for $450 million. It's a painting of Jesus. It's not very good, personally, uh, I don't think. So the point of all this, there's no salt and pepper shakers in themselves worth $18,000. I don't care how good the salt and pepper are. There's no rocking chair worth $442,000 unless it is a, a massager built in, 
uh, maybe a surround sound stereo system, and even then I'm still not paying $442,000 for it even if I could. There's no piece of paper with writing on it worth $811,000. You can buy a pack of 500 pieces of paper for about $350. A drum set in itself, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lot of drum kits at a music store for $2.2 million. A pearl pendant, maybe, but $32 million? Kind of an ugly painting of Jesus for $450 million? It's not the objects themselves that have the value. It's the name connected to the item that brought it its value. But we're going to see this morning the value of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We'll be looking in John chapter 3, uh, probably a very familiar portion of Scripture to you. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And it says in verse 14, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we have this little reminder of a story back from the Old Testament with Moses in Numbers chapter 21. And listen to this account from Numbers chapter 21, because John 3 is connecting what Jesus did to what happened with Moses in Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, starting at verse 4, it says, From Mount Hor they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord set fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So let me just pause there before we continue the passage. The people are grumbling. They're complaining. They'd rather go back to Egypt. They've, and this may just sound like complaining, but think about what's really happening here. They are looking at everything God had done for them and saying, thanks for the offer, but no. They are trampling the, the grace of God and bringing them out of Egypt. And so as a form of discipline, God sends these fiery serpents and the serpents begin biting the people. And so many of the people of Israel die. So ultimately, the people of Israel have put themselves in a pickle. They've put themselves in the situation where they are being disciplined, they're being punished for their own hardness of heart, for their own sinful attitudes. But, in verse 7, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent and live. So the people of Israel bring all of this calamity upon themselves. They cry out to God, and God provides a remedy. He provides a remedy in asking Moses, commanding Moses, to set up this bronze statue of a serpent. And if anybody's bitten by a snake, all they have to do is look at the snake and they won't die. They will be made well. 
So God provides an escape. He provides the remedy for the problem that the Israelites brought upon themselves. And as I think about that, I think about how stubborn. Now, we're not told for sure, but there had to be a couple of stubborn people who were bitten by a snake. And instead of simply looking to the bronze serpent, maybe sat there and just grumbled and complained even more. I can't believe God let this happen to us. This is so horrible. It's so wrong. If we never left Egypt, this never would have happened. It's all God's fault. It's all Moses' fault. And they may have simply been laying there in the desert and died of the snake bite when all along, all they had to do was turn and look. Now, notice how God sets this up. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. All they have to do is look. They don't have to go and touch it. They don't have to go and climb it. They don't have to go and make a sacrifice to it. All they have to do is turn their head or just turn their eyes, depending on where they're positioned. That's all they have to do. And they'll no longer suffer the consequence of the snake bite. And so it's this account in Numbers 21 that in John 3, there's a connection being made. Because in John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John is saying, what Jesus did was foreshadowed in Numbers chapter 21. When Moses built that bronze statue that all they had to do was look at it. And so now Jesus is lifted up on the cross. If you'll notice in Numbers 21, what was the statue? The statue was the very plague that was on the people. And Jesus on the cross, the Bible says, became sin for us. He took our sins on himself on the cross. And now John 3 says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's all God requires is that we believe on Jesus Christ. God doesn't say, okay, Jesus died on the cross, so he gave you a booster shot. Now it's up to you to do the rest. If you do these list of things, then you will have eternal life. He says, it's Jesus. And it's not work as hard as you possibly can, and then the sacrifice of Jesus will make up the rest that you lack. It's all Jesus. And all that he asks is that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in in the sacrifice of Jesus, whoever receives the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It sounds too good to be true. 
that that's all we have to do because everything in our culture says, no, 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 there's, there's a string attached somewhere. And you get these phone calls of these deals that are too good to be true and you know there's always something else behind the scenes. There's some catch that you have to fulfill. In our society, when we think about the gospel, we always think there's got to be a catch. Why is it that we long for some kind of catch to the gospel? Because the gospel confuses us. Because nothing in our society operates like the gospel. It's a lot easier for me to say, give me a list of 10 things to do, and if I do all 10, I know that I have a right relationship with God. Because it's something tangible, I can check it off and know that I've accomplished it. But God said, there's no checklist. There's just one thing. Believe in Jesus Christ. And you will not perish, you'll have eternal life. So why is it that people reject this message of the gospel. He says so in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. It's very hard in our culture to say very simple words, I was wrong. It was my fault. I need to be forgiven. Those words are so hard to come by in our culture. And there's a lot of people who refuse to admit that, who refuse to admit that they need something other than themselves for eternal life. But he says specifically here that it's because people love the darkness and hate the light. There's a part of that that's very natural. When I was in youth group in high school, Lock-ins were still a very popular thing. I don't know if they still are with youth groups anymore or if just safety issues have kind of made those irrelevant. I don't know. But we would often have lock-ins at the church where we get there like 8 o'clock at night and we just spend the whole night at the church and nobody gets any sleep. But I remember one year we tried. A bunch of us just set up our sleeping bags in the, the entryway of the church and we, did, we tried to get some sleep. And so there were some people, there were a bunch of girls in the fellowship hall watching tests of Dubervilles or something like that. And none of us had any interest in that. So we set up shop to try to get some sleep. And so it's pitch black and everything was quiet out there for quite a while. And all of a sudden, a flashlight appears this close to my face. It's a little shocking. It was a member of the youth group named David who had a lot of visual problems, didn't see very well, and he just wanted to see who was out there. And so he went person by person, shining a flashlight right into their faces, saying, is that Paul? Yeah, David. It's a little jarring when you go from pitch black to having the light shown in your face. And there are many people who respond the same way with the gospel. You build your entire life a certain way. You live your entire life a certain way. And then to suddenly realize, ooh, it's not the right way. I mean, you can live your whole life doing all kinds of good religious things. And, and then when you realize that none of that makes any difference, it's simply a matter of faith in Christ. It's hard for us to say, well, I'm going to take the way I've lived my entire life. Say, it was misdirected. I was wrong to think that I could work my way into heaven. 
Sometimes our pride refuses us to do that. Sometimes our pride refuses to let go of the sin that we love. Because often coming to Jesus, we know inherently that when I give my life to Jesus and begin to follow Jesus, that inevitably there are certain things about me that are going to change. And I don't want to change. I like my life the way that it is. And so there's many people who find it very difficult to believe the gospel message. But I want to back up to verse 16. I've shared before that if, if you don't know how to share the gospel with somebody, if you've never shared your faith with somebody, just take John 3.16. Because there's a good chance you may already have it memorized. Because John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell. And I remember a point in my life where I realized the deliberate wording of John 3.16. Because for a number of years, as I mentioned before in Cleveland, I was involved in street ministry. And so we'd go to downtown Cleveland, downtown Akron, all these other places, and we'd share the gospel. And it was really kind of built on this hellfire preaching, this turn or burn, that God is angry with sin. You must repent of your sin and trust in Christ or else you're going to go to hell. But then I come to John 3.16. And it doesn't say, for God was so angry at the world that he gave his only son. It says, for God so what? Loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God so agape the world. The heart of it all. Yes, our sin is going to become a factor and needs to be a Dressed, and we'll get to that. But the hard motivation of the Father is because of sin, my creation is separated from me, and I want them back. The Bible says that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We've been bought back. That God, yes, he needs to punish sin, but more than anything, God wants you back. God wants each one of us back, for God so loved the good religious people, right? No. For God so loved the world. The world. The Bible says that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Basically, when we were still enemies of God, Jesus came and gave himself for us. When we would just have assumed spit in the face of God, Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. Because he wants to restore us to relationship. Because God so loves the world that he gave. He freely gave. He bestowed the gift of his only son. Now, I know this gets into issues of the Trinity, but it just it's helpful for me to think as a father with a son and a daughter. What needs to go into that? Because I know for myself, if, if I was given an offer from God to say, Paul, for, for the rest of your life, you will never once again experience a moment of happiness, but your children will experience nothing but happiness. I make that deal in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Now, if God made the same offer for friends of mine, probably... I hope, maybe, somebody who hates my guts 
somebody who would just assume that I die? No. And that's me. If the offer was changed, and said, Paul, that person who despises you, in order for them to experience nothing but happiness the rest of your life, would you make it so that your children never experience another moment of happiness? No. No hesitation. God freely gave his son for his enemies because he wants to redeem his enemies and make them his children. That's why I love the story of the prodigal son. The son who basically says to his dad, I'm tired of, of waiting for you to die. I want my inheritance now. I want nothing to do with you or this family or this household anymore. Give me my stuff. I want to go live my life. And he makes a complete disaster of his life, wastes everything he has. He's eating with pigs and decides, my dad's never going to love me again, but he'll probably treat me better than I'm experiencing. I'm going to go back to my dad. You know, I'll just be another hired hand. I've kind of ruined the whole sonship thing. And we know what happens when the son makes his way back to the home. The father races to meet him, throws his arms around his son, and throws the biggest party ever. He never scolds him. He never says, now son, here's the payment plan. For you to give me back all that money that you took because you hated me so much. He didn't give him the talk about how dare you. He said, I'm so glad my son's home. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. So yes, there's an issue of perishing involved. Just like the Israelites in Numbers chapter 21, if they stubbornly refused to not look at the statue, they would die of the snake bites. If we refuse to trust in Christ, we will die in our sins. Not because of the dilemma of how can a loving God send people to hell. He provided the remedy. All you had to do was believe. But you chose instead to say, I've been bitten by a snake. I'm going to be bitter about it and just let myself die and be resentful. The remedy was there for you the entire time. In love, God made the remedy available. So it's not a case of God's just up to like, who can I send to hell today? It's he provided the remedy. And the Bible says that he's not wanting any to perish. God wants every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet Earth to take the remedy of Christ. But he won't force you. He sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. But have eternal life. And I love how the Bible defines eternal life. It said, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Eternal life is knowing God. Having relationship with God. Everything else is just a logistic of where that relationship plays out. You know, we get caught up in heaven, and heaven's going to be glorious. It's going to be wonderful. 
streets of gold, mansions, and all these other things. But the reality is, if Jesus isn't there, then it becomes hell. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. If you take the most run-down, dilapidated area of downtown Pittsburgh and put Jesus there and say, this is where we spend eternity, sign me up, wherever Jesus is, relationship with him, that's eternal life. And so eternal life isn't just this thing of someday I'm going to have eternal life. We have eternal life because we have a restored relationship with God. It's already begun because that at its heart is what God desires. He doesn't just want you to say, oh, I'm a sinner, forgive me. He says, I want to restore you to full sonship, to full daughtership. Because there's a huge difference between the two. Maybe you grew up in a home where there was a very strict and demanding father. And your being obedient simply meant that he didn't belt you that night. And so you lived your life just trying to escape the belt. My guess is there wasn't this deep connection with that father. Because your life was defined by, I just don't want to get whipped by dad. That's very different than a father who lavishes his love on you as his child. This is what God desires, a relationship with us, to transform us, to show his love to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life a very difficult concept for us to grasp is that God so loved you that he sent Jesus for you. I believe that 100% for every single one of you. I struggle to fully believe that for me. There's something about personalizing it that could be very difficult. This morning, I pray that you would just allow that to soak in. For God so loved you, he sent Jesus for you. Yes, to take your sin upon himself, but the reason he did that was because he wanted you to be in relationship with him. He wanted you to be the recipient of his love and affection. And so Jesus came for you. Jesus went to the cross for you. And I love how verse 17 continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The book of Romans says there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so because of Jesus, you are not condemned. A lot of us as Jesus followers live lives of condemnation, of guilt, of shame, of remorse. But Jesus says, you are not condemned. Because every single last one of our sins were dealt with in Christ on the cross. So God no longer has this grudge against us or this grudge against our sin because it was all handled at the cross. And now we are not condemned in his presence. We are fully 
embraced and accepted. Let me go back to where we began. All of these silly little pieces of memorabilia, salt and pepper shakers, a rocking chair, a movie script, drum set, a, a pearl pendant, a painting of Jesus. These things are selling for millions and millions of dollars. Right now, in Dickinson, Texas. Janelle, do you know Dickinson, Texas? No. Okay. Somewhere in Texas. Texas is big. We know that. There's a church called the uh, Shrine of the Cross. And in this church, they have this very elaborate thing set up. And inside of it, they claim, is a splinter from the cross of Christ. Not for sale. Now, is it a splinter from the cross of Christ? I have no idea. It could be a toothpick fragment from the 1400s, for all I know. But this thing is encased. It is secure. And people flock to it. I mean, I could set out a broken toothpick and nobody's going to care. What puts value on this piece of wood? Because it's alleged to be from the actual cross of Christ. Again, I don't know if it is. So here's a better question. If somebody had a verifiable drop of the blood of Jesus, could you put a price tag on that? Think about the care. If I was the one who paid $2.2 million for Ringo Starr's drum kit, I would never touch that drum kit. My kids would never have played that drum set. There's no way I'm going to do anything to risk the value of that drum set. Wasn't just one drop of blood. Jesus shed, poured out his blood to redeem you back to the Father. What kind of worth, what kind of value is that? What kind of love is that? For God the Father to say, I will pay the highest price tag, the shed blood of my son, for each and every one of you and for me. This is the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the gospel that we're to build our lives on. This is the gospel, the foundation that we're to stand upon. And the gospel that we're to share with the world. That God so loved them just like he so loved you that he gave his son and paid a price that is without numerical value to redeem you, to purchase you, to bring you back into relationship with him, to pay the price to take away your sins, that you can be his beloved son, his beloved daughter. And it's an offer he longs for the entire world to receive. He's called us to be the messengers of that news. And that's good news. And I pray this morning that we would allow ourselves the opportunity to start 
allowing our hearts and minds to be saturated with the reality that for God so loved me, he sent his only son to pour out his precious blood for me. Because once that takes hold of us, we can't help but share that. Because sometimes sharing the gospel feels like this duty or this obligation. If I found out today, or if you found out today, that there was somebody standing at five points, and anybody who, drive, who drove by received from this man a check for $1 million. And so you drive by, and he hands you this check for $1 million, and you take it to the bank and everything's verified and it's not a scam or anything. And then you go home and say, I hope nobody else knows about this. I hope nobody else finds out about it. I just want it to be me. You know, it's going to be really awkward if I go to people at work or go to my neighbors and tell them that there's a guy at five points giving out a million dollars. They might think I'm crazy. Wouldn't you naturally start calling every person you knew within driving distance? Start calling family or friends from out of state and being like, get here now. There's a guy who will give you $1 million. You just got to get here. Would you have to feel pressured or forced to share that news? Or would you be bubbling over to let as many people know as possible? Because the reality is, if two people get those checks, if 5,000 people get those checks, it doesn't take away from the check you received. If we keep the gospel as some mental information, sharing the gospel will always be a burden, a duty, or an obligation. But if we understand that God loves me so much, he let Jesus shed his blood for me so that I can be the recipient of his love. I want as many people to know that as possible. Because the heart of the Father is that none should perish, but that everyone will come to eternal life. That everyone, just like Numbers 21, would turn and look and be healed and have life. Let's pray. Jesus, even saying thank you just seems inadequate.